I kind of found myself distancing myself just because there was this perception of me like, oh, you, you would love Ichiro, you would love baseball, you would love Pokemon. And when I really think about identity and, and being Asian, it's, it's like I kind of went through this period of time where I was very much rejecting a lot of these perceived ideas of, of what I'm supposed to like. everybody, and welcome back to Miss Shelved, your bi-weekly dose of bookstore love. I'm your host, Nicole Brinkley, and every now and then we get an episode where after we record it, I think about how honored I am to have been a part of that conversation at all, and today is one of those episodes. For those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome. Every two weeks, I introduce you to an independent bookseller in conversation with an author they love. This week's bookseller is Kalani Kapahua. Hi, my name is Kalani Kapahua. I am a bookseller with Third Place Books in Seattle, Washington. I am the store manager of our Ravenna location. Kalani is in conversation with the wonderful Tay Keller. Hi, I'm Tay Keller. I am the author of The Science of Breakable Things, When You Trap a Tiger, and most recently, Jennifer Chan is Not Alone. Settle in as these two talk about the 90s and about Pokemon but also what it's like to be a biracial Korean American in America right now. All right. Well, hi, Tay. It's so nice to get the opportunity to talk with you. We met briefly just a month ago at the Chuck Klosterman event up in Lake Forest Park. And I thought that would be kind of a nice way to um, kind of orient ourselves, given Chuck Klosterman's book, which was called The 90s. And my lead question to get us kind of in, and hopefully I can kind of segue this into our conversation here. But I'm just kind of curious what you thought of the event as a whole, if you had read the, the, the Chuck Klosterman, the 90s book, and then see like, when it comes to the 90s, I think, I think we're about the same age and everything. So I was kind of curious, like, what are maybe some of the, the pivotal little memories that you have about the 90s? Yeah, um, so that was a fun event. It's always fun to see other authors kind of do their thing and, and how they do public events. Um, he was so chill. Like, it felt like he just went up there and he was like, hey, this is me. And I was just like, oh, my God. Right, <laughs> I like, yeah, I was so surprised. Like, I didn't know what to expect because I've been a fan of his through podcasts and when I realized he wasn't like having like an in-conversation partner or whatever, I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder how this will be. And he was very much just like, he kind of owns the stage and was like a stand-up comedian. And I was just like, wow, he's, he's, he's pretty great. Yeah, it was really impressive. <laughs> For the 90s, um, I was young. Uh, I was born in the early 90s. So that was, you know, my first decade of life. Mm. Um, I feel like when I talk about my childhood, it sounds so outdated now. I feel like it sounds like I'm talking about like the 1960s where I'm just mm -hmm. like, oh, mm -hmm. back in my day, we used to run outside and, and play and our parents didn't even know where we were and blah, 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 dial up internet. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just, I think that's 
so interesting to think back now as that's my childhood and now I'm writing for kids and their childhood is so different um, and thinking about those different contexts and how we grew up. But what about you? What were you doing in the 90s? So it was, yeah, certainly my formative childhood decade. I was born in the, the late 80s. And so I, I, I read the book and I just realized like how much, um, I mean, yeah, it was so interesting that I, I remembered everything about the book so or, or everything that he was talking about in the book so well. And it's so funny to think that it's been, you know, so many years now and it does sound um, crazy. So Chuck Klosterman's The 90s just came out a month ago and it's um, Chuck Klosterman's a great cultural essayist. He's been like a pop culture critic and writer for like 20, 30 years and is also very well known for being on a bunch of different podcasts and was also the co-founder of Grantland. So I've been a, a fan of his for a number of years. And so his new book is The 90s, a book in which he's kind of breaking down the 90s, not necessarily from a critical lens, but in a very like quirky Chuck Klosterman way. Gosh, it's it's a hard book to describe because after the event, it was really interesting how he talked about how he wasn't trying to be overly critical. He was trying to treat the 90s as if it was in that moment and, and describe what was going on. So um, so yeah, it was a very entertaining book looking back on the 90s in a nostalgic type of way. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that I was thinking about a lot, and I had to even look it up, but he, he didn't talk about it in his book, was about Pokemon. And I thought Pokemon was such a interesting thing that had happened to me in my childhood and in the late 90s that it kind of very much framed how I view some identity now and just that it was kind of the first experience that I had of East Asian influence on American pop culture. And I was very much kind of shaped by that, especially like thinking about your work and thinking about kind of our overarching subject of identity and how I guess, let's see, what, I'm, what am I trying to say here? I, I, I guess just like, I, I look back on that time and I remember people thinking, oh, here's this like, you know, scrawny Asian kid. He must love Pokemon. And then I think that was kind of my first experience of like these cultural expectations upon myself. And I was just kind of curious if, if you had other similar experiences of that time. My gosh, just you mentioning Pokemon just takes me right back. I'm so interested to hear you say that. So where you grew up, was that very much an Asian thing to like Pokemon or was it more of the mainstream culture? Right. Yeah. And that's what I'm also really curious to talk with you about further, just like you growing up in Hawaii. And I grew up here in the Seattle suburbs. And I feel like obviously the rise of Pokemon was like an everywhere thing, especially if you were a middle schooler, like there was hard to escape between the TV show, the Game Boy video game, the card games, like the movie that eventually came out. It was such a big thing that there was just like an expectation like oh if you're you know young of course you like pokemon and just the image of pikachu being like everywhere on binders and peachy folders and it was yeah hard to escape so i'm curious about (laughs) yeah what maybe 
in Hawaii, the response was. But I think overall, like, especially in that moment, I don't associate it being strictly like an Asian thing. But I remember like looking back on it, I do remember there being this underlying like, oh, of course you do. Of course you would like Pokemon type of thing. That's so interesting. Yeah. Growing up in Hawaii, I think now about how lucky I was to grow up there. I did not realize it at the time, but it has such a huge Asian population and Mm -hmm. such a huge biracial Asian population. So really it wasn't a thing. It, It wasn't something that made me feel different or other and that now I just feel so grateful for. But yeah, it it was very mainstream. But I do have this distinct memory when I got to middle school of, you know, it was kind of like this wave of Pokemon when I was in elementary school that that made East Asian culture cool. And then by the time I got to middle school, it wasn't. And I remember that I visited Korea for the first time and I was so excited and it was awesome. And they have these street markets where they sell all, all different things. But I was really excited about the clothes because I was just like starting to understand the concept of fashion and and individual clothing choice. So I bought all of these new clothes that were in really popular Korean styles at the time. And I remember coming back to Hawaii and wearing these clothes in school and people were just like, that is so weird that you're wearing that. And, And I felt that even in Hawaii where there is such a big Asian population, but I, I feel like despite that, American culture so strongly influenced by what is popular and what is considered normal by white culture, white American culture. And so I think that was kind of the first time that I recognized this like, huh, maybe this is something that I should not be so proud of, or maybe that I have to think about hiding this in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was very formative for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of kind of like it being in a wave where it's really popular and then it's not as cool. It's not perceived as cool because I that that's very much how I look back on it. I remember not that I I like rejected it, but I just remember very abruptly kind of halting that interest, like kind of distancing myself from liking Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh or some of those things that were kind of coming out. Another key thing that was happening was at least locally here in Seattle and, and me being kind of a big sports fan was also the rise of Ichiro Suzuki, the, the baseball player who his first year was with the Seattle Mariners in 2001. And so I kind of like viewed that whole, um, as Chuck Klosterman was saying in, in the 90s, that the 90s, the decade actually ended at 9-11 in 2001. And so there's this like thing like, oh, yes, if the decade ended there, then I can kind of view my own life in this weird kind of shift as well. And and I was starting high school right in that 2001, 2002 year. And Ichiro, this, you know, big Japanese superstar baseball player, but, and then kind of, you know, loving baseball and everything. But I kind of found myself distancing myself just because there was this perception of me like, oh, you, you would love Ichiro. You would love baseball. You would love Pokemon. And when I really think about identity and, and being Asian, it's, it's like, I kind of went through this period of time where I was very much rejecting a lot of these perceived ideas of of what I'm supposed to like, quote unquote. And what you were saying about like the fashion trends in Korea, I remember the first time I went to Korea in, I think, 20, 
2015, 2016-ish, I, I remember walking around and seeing that everyone had this, the trend of, of wearing a fanny pack across your chest was like super, super popular. Yeah. And right. And then like flash forward a couple years later, it came to the US and like you see kids now like with the, the fanny pack across their chest and they like sell different like kind of shoulder bags of that style. And I was just like, oh, they were doing that in Korea a few years ago. And then of course, seeing, you know, BTS and renewed interest in Eastern culture and Korea in pop culture has been really, really fascinating. I, like, I, I mean, I, I've even seen like the, the meme online about how um, being Korean is really in right now. <laughs> and it's just so fascinating to me from afar. And um, yeah, I'm sure you've got other thoughts as well. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about that. I'm so excited that Korean culture is being appreciated right now in the US. I think that experience of feeling like, oh, this was a trend in Korea, and then now it's here X amount of years later, and all the white girls are, are wearing these clothes is kind of this, maybe what white people don't always get about appropriation and, and what makes it so frustrating is it's just like, sure, like wear what you want and like what you like, but also there's this element of, but when I did it, it was weird. And that's just very frustrating. Mm. And, you know, now there's also the whole, I don't know if you, you've seen the fox eye trend, the, the makeup trend. Oh, sure. Right, right. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, where people on Instagram will pull their eyes to make them look more Asian, um, which makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> But then on the, on the flip side, it's it's cool to see this stuff appreciated. And it's cool also to see like genuinely Korean media um, like Parasite and Squid Game coming in a really big way to the U.S. and being able to watch those stories because I think that Korean stories right now are really addressing capitalism in a way that is so relatable to a U U.S. audience. But I don't know that we're quite addressing it so head on yet in the US. Yeah, it's been really, really fascinating to to see. I remember there was this book called The Rise of Korean Cool that came out a few years ago. I'm blanking on the author's name, but man, it was it was this great deep dive on like K-pop and how just the Korean entertainment industry just is so focused on creating 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 and that they kind of like manufacture these like music pop groups with young children by the time they're like five years old and it was very like conflicting to just to hear that these these kids kind of have their whole lives mapped out for them yeah that's really interesting i i was also reading about the idea that korea now with that whole k-pop idea and also other forms of media is really considering media as one of their major cultural exports and mm -hmm. I think it's it's interesting to think of a real culture as a product mm -hmm. uh, and that is capitalism, I guess. <laughs> Which, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I've been reading through the newsletter that you create on your website and I, I saw that you had 
address the subject of being biracial on a couple of your newsletters. And I, I saw the one earlier today, I was reading through it, and you talked about how the subject of race, you didn't really think about until you got to college, really. And I think overall, I had a, a, a similar trajectory myself and where I wasn't really actively thinking about it. I think, like I grew up in suburban Seattle here, in Shoreline, Washington, where there actually does happen to be a, a pretty large Korean population. And so it really wasn't something I actively thought about, or I wasn't really aware of like the greater subject of race until probably yeah late high school, early college myself. And But I, I thought there was a lot of interesting overlap about how it wasn't until you moved to the East Coast for college, I think. And, and so putting those pieces together, I was just kind of curious what was maybe the instance when you first got to college that made you actively think about the subject of race? Yeah, I mean, kind of like I was talking about in Hawaii, it's not weird to be biracial. So many people are, and Mm -hmm. we recognize each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the biracial population in the the mainland U.S. is very small. And so that's not something that a lot of people are very familiar with. And when I went, especially to the East Coast, where there's not a lot of Asians in general, and in Philadelphia, I just had this experience of recognizing that all of a sudden, other people were dictating my identity, and that I felt like it didn't matter how I saw my identity anymore. It was all about what kind of box other people were putting me into. And I realized that I had different friends who saw me differently. So some people saw me as Asian and other people saw me as white. And it's not like anyone tells you, oh, I see you as a white person. It's just that you're you're kind of becoming friends with someone and they'll make these comments. And I started to be able to recognize when people were seeing me as different as either white or Asian. And that was such a jarring experience to feel like in different contexts, suddenly I felt like a different person to people. Mm-hmm. And I had one experience where I was with one of my friends who I, I'm no longer friends with, um, but he started talking about Asian people and just went on this whole rant about how boring Asian people are. And I just stopped him and I was like, I'm Asian. Mm. And he just looked at me and he was like, oh, well, not you, obviously. I mean, fob Asians. And it was horrifying. It was Mm. this total, you know, realizing what some white people say when they think it's only white people in the room. And when I told him I'm Asian, I could see the way that he looked at me changed. And that was so unsettling. I think after that point, I felt like I wanted to take back my identity and my understanding of myself. And I kind of swung in the other direction where I felt like I was just proclaiming to everybody that I met that I was Korean. (laughs) Like I was Mm -hmm. so needy about Mm -hmm. saying like, I'm Korean and, you know, I I like these Korean things and I just, I need you to know who I am so that I am taking back my identity and it's not in other people's hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, yeah, you share that story and because that's kind of the, 
the memory I have myself is very similar to that. When I was in high school, the area I lived in, there were quite a few Asian Americans. And so when I kind of transferred into a public high school, I kind of had a couple groups of friends. I had, you know, a bunch of white friends and then I had some Asian friends. And then I kind of, I remember like the way some of my white friends would kind of like talk about like the Asians in our school. And it was always like, a, oh, you're not really Asian. You're not, you're not like them. You're not like the, the fob Asian, the fresh off the boat Asian, which is very much like in that moment, I, I kind of like, oh, and I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm really not as, as like an adopted Asian. I didn't really see myself as some of these other Asians that were in our school and, you know, who were learning English as a second language. And, and um, I mean, some of them I certainly became friends with later. It made sense to me because it was like, I'm not really like those other Asians. But, you know, when you're, you're young, you don't really get that. And like I said, I, I kind of went through this period of time of rejecting these, you know, perceived ideas of what it meant to be Asian. And what it meant to be Asian was that you love Pokemon and anime and all these things that I didn't really see myself in. And so it was it was a, a really interesting time, which I think is also kind of a, a great little segue into your your new book, Jennifer Chan is Not Alone. I feel like you really capture that feeling of the social standing in school and being torn between worlds. And I was able to really kind of connect with Mallory's experience. And I, I love that. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think that that feeling feels very true in this racial identity idea, but also in all kinds of identities, and especially in middle school, where it feels so click-driven, like you have to find your label, and, and that's who you are, and that's who you have to be, and, and you have to choose between different friends. So I was, I was really trying to bring that feeling in. I have a question for you, kind of about what you've been saying about how you were rejecting those ideas of Asian stereotypes and who you were supposed to be. I know that you're also a writer. I'm wondering in your kind of early writing life, if you wrote characters that shared an identity with you or if you were writing white characters. Yeah, you know, that's um, a great question that I've actually just been thinking about more this week. I was just at a great Hugo House event where Matthew Salasas was the speaker and he has a great new book called, um, uh, oh shoot, I'm kind of blanking on the full title of it. It's in the real world. It's really good. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And um, and then I got to like talk with him a little bit after the event and how he has, um, I, don't, I don't know if I... I can say it, but his next project that he's working on involves the basketball player, Jeremy Lin. And in my writing program, one of the stories that I wrote was about Jeremy Lin, who was, you know, a New York Knicks basketball player who created this whole like Lin sanity moment, which was very, this kind of flash in the pan moment culturally, where he just kind of emerged from nowhere and became an NBA superstar seemingly overnight. And there was this like three week period where he was just one of the top NBA players, just like out of nowhere. And of course, he's Asian American, which was further like this weird, like, whoa, where did this guy come from? This doesn't make any sense. And so I wrote a story about Jeremy Lin as it was going on, knowing that it was very much 
this kind of brief moment in time that we were all experiencing, knowing that, oh yeah, this is just a quick thing. We'll forget about this in a few years. And basically it was kind of a story about everyone having like a 15 minutes of fame type of thing. And I remember writing it and my writing advisor just told me like, oh, you have to submit this story. This is great. This is amazing. And I I look back on it and that was like really the first time I really explored writing about an Asian American character. And so like looking back on that in hindsight, it's like, oh, well, no wonder that was maybe some of my strongest writing. I was writing about something I genuinely experienced and it was it was very like real and true to me as, as someone who was obviously Asian American, who played sports a lot. I played basketball. I was using, you know, in, in the sport of basketball, there's obviously a lot of trash talk. I was using lines of trash talk that people had told me while playing basketball. So it was just like, of course, this is my strongest piece of writing. And it was just like, oh, and, and now I look back on that and I was like, why didn't I try to write Asian American characters? And that's something I still kind of grapple with now. And I mean, I'm not actively writing more, but or anymore. But I think that is something I, I I clearly want to explore and need to explore and should explore. And yeah, did it feel different to you as you were writing, or was it just in hindsight where you're like, oh? I feel like it's primarily in hindsight. I mean, it's been a number of years since I wrote that story. I remember it it coming out so easy. I I I, I will say that I I feel like that was just like one of the easiest stories, which is also funny to look back and see like, oh, it's funny that that was kind of perceived as one of my better stories. If, if, if writing can be that easy, I, I should explore it this way all the time. But yeah, it's something I, I've always wanted to explore more, for sure. And, th- and that's what's been great about getting uh, uh, the opportunity to read um, all three of your books. The thing that I love the most is about how how it's subtle in your writing. And that's the thing that I always kind of grapple with. Like, I don't want to just write Asian American characters because that's expected of me and I need to make it known that they're Asian Americans and have it be central to the story. Like the fact that it's very much, it's in the background. It's something that you need to know while you're reading, but it is not what drives the story it's not what drives the plot and um, you do a really great job of of that in all in all three of your books here thank you yeah i feel like when i was reading in middle school I, that's kind of what i was looking for in a lot of ways was just stories about asian kids just living <laughs> not about them being asian but i i also the first time that I wrote about an Asian character was The Science of Breakable Things. It was my first published book. And before that, I was writing only about white characters. And this was, I was also writing YA and this was in the time of the big YA dystopian trend. So Mm. basically I was writing like Hunger Games knockoffs. It was really bad. (laughs) But it felt really different when I started to write the science of breakable things. And that's partly because I shifted into middle grade instead of young adult, but it's also because I was writing this Asian character. But even with that book, the first draft, Natalie, the main character was half Japanese instead of half Korean. Hmm. And my mom read that draft and she was just like, this is good. And you should try to publish this. But 
she can't be Japanese. She has to be Korean. And I think she, she kind of explained to me that, and I knew about the history between Japan and Korea, but she had been writing about Korean culture and she's published. Um, and mm-hmm. she was like, if you, a Korean author, write about this Japanese character as your first book, mm-hmm. it would be almost like a betrayal to the Korean community because the history is so violent between those cultures. Mm-hmm. And I think she was right. And I'm really glad that I did change. But that change was kind of like a double-edged sword in some ways, because the reason that I had written this step removed from my real identity was because I felt like I needed that distance. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to be too close to my character both as I was writing it and also if I was thinking about publishing it. And I think switching so closely aligned with my real identity made it so that I could be a lot more honest and authentic in the writing. Mm -hmm. But it also has this effect of people reading it and just thinking that's me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that's such a, a strange experience. And I'm sure a lot of writers feel this, but especially writing for kids because my friends and my family will read it and they will assume that everything that my characters say is like my thought mm-hmm. and I'm like, no my mm-hmm. character is 12. <laughs> um, but, but yeah I, I think that it really le- just the fact that we share that identity leads people to assume mm-hmm. that I'm basically writing an autobiography which I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. I saw that you shared one of your mother's essays in one of your newsletter pieces. And there was that line about identity and how she wrote, I think I even have it here. Um, yeah, she. I think she was writing about you, but identifying herself as Korean will be a choice for her. And that is something I've been thinking about a lot since I have a a one-year-old biracial Korean girl now. And that's also been why like reading your three books has just been this like really special moment for me right now. I don't typically read much middle grade stories, but yeah, the fact that there are biracial characters, then it's like, gosh, like in a couple of years, my daughter can read these books and actually like see herself in a way where I mean, like when I was that age, I, I certainly didn't really experience reading like Korean American stories, the way there's more opportunities and more published books now. And so it really made me so appreciative of your writing. And I, I even saw you've updated your author bio to include how you are writing biracial girl characters trying to find their voices. And I, I yeah, it was just like this moment of like, oh my gosh, like this is such a great moment to, to be able to have these stories right now. Oh my gosh, that makes me emotional. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been it's been um, just being a bookseller with a, a one year old daughter now, and I'm slowly kind of, you know, immersing myself in the children's books in a way that I, I never really did or had to before. And so knowing that there's been this great push for diverse stories, especially within children's literature, is just it, it means so much more now than ever. And so it just has provided me this whole new like context. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's really special for me. Yeah. I'm so excited for your children's literature <laughs> journey as your daughter grows up. 
I just, I wrote a picture book. So I was really diving into the world of picture books and oh, they're so great. Yeah. Um, have yeah. you been starting to collect a ton of picture books? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great. Like she's fully like walking around now and starting to like pick up some of the books that we've accumulated over the past few years. And, and she's actually like starting to flip through them now herself. And it's just like this great moment of like, yes, <laughs> the fact that she like walks over to the bookshelf and picks something up on her own accord. is just like this uh, amazing moment <laughs> as a bookseller, as a bookstore manager, it's like, yes. <laughs> you made a reader. Um. I guess talking about your book more, another thing that I found really touching was this very beautiful like author's note that you have at the end of your book and talking about how you connected with the characters and how this was something that happened to you. We're recording this before the release of Jennifer Chan is not alone, but I, I guess it just kind of curious if you can kind of talk about where you were when you decided that you want to write this book and, and, and tell this story. Yeah. So the book is about bullying and it is largely inspired by an experience that I had being bullied in middle school um, and one event specifically, which is kind of revealed in the book, but that experience of being bullied has stayed with me for a long time in ways that I think I didn't even really realize that I kind of uh, repressed <laughs> um, until I started writing about middle school and all of those memories kind of came back to me and then I was thinking about how much it still affects me and how much I think you know everyone's childhood still affects them and as soon as I knew that I was publishing my first book and I knew that I was launching this career in middle grade. I knew that I wanted to write a story about bullying, but I did not know how. <laughs> and I, I was really nervous to come back to that and about all of these emotions that it would bring up again. Hmm. Um, and it also, I was thinking about the bullying books that I was gravitating towards when I was in middle school and I really appreciated those books and I needed them. But I felt like when I was reading books about bullying or mean girls or, you know, social dynamics, what I would look for when I would read was what everyone's label was. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about. But I felt like these books kind of reinforced the idea that there's, you know, there's the victim, there's the, the head mean girl, there's the follower and the sidekick and, and everyone has their role and their place and there are good kids and there are bad kids. And I, I wanted to know like where I fit into everything and, and try to understand what happened to me in the context of understanding the roles that everyone was playing. And in hindsight, I think that I, I understand <laughs> why I was trying to make sense of it. And so that was my idea of how to make sense of things. But I don't think that that was a healthy or productive way for me to be making sense of things. And so when I knew that I wanted to write a book about bullying, I knew that I wanted it to be really more than a book about bullying. I wanted it to be a book about how to exist in the world, how to be a person and how to be a good person and how sometimes that's really challenging and sometimes good people do bad things and 
how do we move forward from that? And how do we forgive ourselves? And how do we forgive each other? And really recognizing that there are no set labels or roles. And we're all just people trying to exist and trying to figure it out and making mistakes and trying to make things better. And that is kind of the idea and the, the, the story that I wanted to add to bullying literature. And I hope that I did that. And I hope that, you know, kids who are maybe in the same place that I was at that age can find this book and kind of find a way out of those roles and those labels and, and can understand themselves as bigger than just these small boxes that the middle school social structure sometimes puts them in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so well said. Yeah. I, uh, I know it, it definitely like took me back to like my middle school experience. And I think in the advanced reader copy edition I have in the little editor note at the beginning, it, 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 there, there's a perfect line that your editor wrote that describes that whole everything. Seventh grade is the hardest year of my life. And obviously saying that in, in the year 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, it's just like, oh yeah, no, it's oddly really, really true in, in some way here. So yeah, I, I, I really love that. Um, so yeah, we are out of time. You can visit me on social media on my Instagram page. I am Kalani.k. I'm also at my name is K on Twitter. You can also find me at thirdplacebooks.com. I'm the store manager of our Ravenna store location. I am on Twitter and Instagram, just at Keller. You can find me at takekeller.com. Um, that's also where you can find links to my newsletters that we kind of mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, this was really fun. Thank you for talking with me. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Kalani and Tay for taking the time for that incredible conversation. I was so honored to be able to listen to that and then listen to it again during the editing process. If you enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you do, don't forget to follow Tay and Kalani on social media, but also you can follow the podcast at Misshelved Pod. We are phasing out our Patreon in an attempt to give me more time to actually read books and not just, uh, you know, constantly be posting about other people's books. So social media is the best way to support us or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and by rating it both spotify and i believe apple except ratings hit that little five star button let the algorithm know you like it we'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode until then happy reading